Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bright Garden Voices Second Garden Chat. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Akshin Jafarov. Akshin grew up in Azerbaijan during the last decade of the Soviet Union, and as I found out yesterday, to a family of historians. Correct? Yes. Both father, mother, uncle, I believe. Yes. My people, yes. very happy to hear that. He graduated from Baku State University in the year 2000 and practiced law in Azerbaijan. Later in 2009, he graduated from Western Theological Seminary in Holland, uh, Michigan, and was ordained as a minister in the Reformed Church in America. Yeah. Action is the author of three books, two novels, and one collection of essays and short stories published in Azerbaijan. One of his books was longlisted for the 2013 Azerbaijani National Book Award. Akshin, uh, welcome, and we are very glad to have you here. Uh, before moving on to the questions, actually, one thing I forgot to mention, uh, Akshin's work as a minister uh, focuses on outreach to marginalized populations such as refugees, immigrants, and on interfaith dialogue between Abrahamic religions, which is very relevant to today's world with all the refugees and all these problems and tensions between different groups of people. Uh, welcome, Akshin. And before I move on to the questions, I would like you to perhaps maybe introduce yourself, uh, say something I didn't tell to our audience about joining us. Thank you very much, Arnold. I really appreciate this invitation. I think um, this is a great time to speak about these matters, to understand these two ethnic groups better through these kind of tools, uh, bridges. The only thing I would add is that uh, I have been living in the United States for the last almost 16, 17 years, and that's where I'm joining from. So I am bringing my experiences in two countries, back in Azerbaijan and in the United States. So that's, that's what I would add, perhaps. Excellent. So with that said, let us jump right into some questions we have prepared. The first one, um, according to your observations, how did the traumatic elements from the first Nagorno-Karabakh war, including the hundreds of thousands of refugees and IDPs uh, impact Azerbaijani society? How did it traumatize? How did it have an impact on mental health, let's say? And to add to that, how has the conflict impacted yourself and your loved ones? Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a great question. So um, I, will, I will mostly speak based on my observations uh, as an Azerbaijani who lived in the country and who actually observed the growth of the conflict uh, because this all happened in front of my eyes. In the late 1980s, I was in Azerbaijan. And I will also speak based on some of my explorations with refugees that took place back in Azerbaijan somewhere around 2004, 2005, and also based on my work here in Azerbaijan. So, uh, but I won't necessarily give any statistical data or reference to some medical data. That's not my field and I don't have that information. Um, from my observation, I would say in short, the, the influence or the impact of this first Nagorno-Karabakh war between Azerbaijan and Armenia is a very complex and actually multi-layered. It's really easy to characterize it as a negative, but I would say in terms of 
emotional response, I would say it created resentment within Azerbaijani society against Armenians and also against the Russians, because a lot of people perceived Russia in the process to be helping to Armenian government. And I think there was also some melancholy among the people because people perceived their losses as the loss of culturally symbolic places, culturally symbolic landscapes. I'm sure you know from your studies of history that Shusha is very important to Azerbaijanis as much as it is important to Armenians. Uh, there was also the bridge, the Khudafarin bridge, that really it's a historical bridge connecting Azerbaijan and Iran that was lost during the first war. So these kind of things really caused um, Azerbaijanis, I guess, uh, uh, psychologically the uh, insecure identity, if I can say so, the loss of security within the society, the damage to self-identity of the ethnic group. But I would say, based on my observation, it was really mostly about uh, some kind of a diffused resentment among people trying to rationalize all the trauma that the people went through. And on top of that, I would say melancholy for all the lost lands. And you can see it in Azerbaijani songs or poetry that rose after the loss of the whole uh, first Nagorno-Karabakh war. So it's still, I think it still continues at least in Azerbaijani discourse, in public discourse in one way or the other, but we will see how, um, how the second war and how its outcome change the situation. Um, that would be a brief answer. I can go on and on. I'm not sure if that is really satisfactory or not since we have a limited time, but I will stop here and then see what you, uh, what you say. No, that is, yeah, no, that is, uh, of course, that is a satisfactory answer and very interesting. And uh, you yourself and your loved ones, um, have you, you feel that you have been affected? Yes, so um, uh, when, when actually I was in school, I remember that uh, 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 there was a fight going between one of the villages that the town where I lived was close to and uh, people on the other side of the border, uh, Armenians or army or whoever you call them. And I remember one day uh, the people from the village of Sederek, which is a village in Nakhchivan uh, Autonomous Republic. That's where I lived. I lived in Sharur town, uh, which was very close to Sederek. So due to that fight, people started to run away from their village. And I remember my parents, my mom went to the marketplace and brought a family to host in the house kind of to give them some space because it was uh, really uh, unsafe for them to stay outside. That was my first encounter, like literally first encounter with the war um, almost in my own home. Before that, of course, you hear about the war, you read about this, you may hear uh, artillery sounds uh, from the distance, but I really never came into contact until that time. And I think that uh, uh, tremendously influenced my choices later. Uh, which I believe later propelled me to work with refugees when I came to the United States. But my understanding was that I saw a lot of suffering, a lot of loss, a lot of brokenness, and I was able as a child to some degree um, identify with that because it also made me anxious. You are living in a family now with uh, five other people that you have never seen. These five people occasionally cry. They lost their homes. They tell the stories of suffering and loss. And that made me a little bit anxious. On top of that, I had a friend when I was in school. 
And my friend, unfortunately, one day died. I think he was uh, somewhere outside uh, of, of Sharur town. And I heard, I have never been there. I haven't really seen the event, but I heard that due to the artillery shelling, one of the, uh, I know what to call it, bombs or artillery uh, shells, whatever you call, fell very close and exploded and basically killed him immediately. It was a traumatic event for me to the point where later I actually fictionalized the whole story. Basically, I wrote a story, took that, uh, took that raw memory and wrote a story about that in, in, in Azerbaijani language. Um, uh, I remember one day my dad coming home and telling the story about how people are running away from their villages, how there are people are dying. And so occasionally seeing these images on TV, uh, personally, I believe made me at the time, at least as a child, young child, uh, teenager, even more anxious. So I would say uh, personally, based on my memories, it was a um, it was a disturbing experience. It was an experience that helped me understand the war is not going to help to these ethnic nations. We may, we may win for a short time, Armenian Republic may win for a short time, but in the long term, it will create only more and more wounds that both of these nations need to deal later. So that was my experience. Thank you, I'm sorry about your friend and may he rest in peace. Great, so I want to eventually ask about the Gashkin storytellers which have uh, you know, written about. But before I go there, I want to ask about, you know, the legacy of storytelling in the Caucasus, uh, you know, which it's, it's, a, it's, it's an area where Armenians and Azerbaijanis, you know, share this tradition of storytelling that the Gashkin, you know, in part reflect. So we had, for example, the Ashiks or Ashurs, as Armenians call them, for example, Sayat Nova, being one of the famous poets, and, you know, all these uh, big Gosans or the Gusans of the, you know, Iranian world earlier, Armenians called Gusans. So can you just tell us a bit about the, you know, the traditions of storytelling, um, whether, you know, whether shared by Armenians or Azerbaijanis or just in Azerbaijani society? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I do agree with you that there are definitely shared traditions between Azerbaijanis and Armenians. And I would, I would also agree that uh, storytelling tradition is one of them, whether it is in the form of uh, Ashik storytelling. Uh, I don't know what to call them in English, maybe bards or minstrels or some kind of other group. But uh, these are the storytellers that use certain instruments uh, to sing tell uh, hikaye uh, or destan or some kind of a story, whether it is a long story or short story. And uh, in Azerbaijani, we call them ashik. Uh, 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 as you said, I think in Armenian, they're called gusan. Um, I don't know the- Ashuk, actually. Also ashuk. But Great. I mean, in, in the earlier time periods, they were called gusan in Iranian languages, gusan in Armenian. Yes. Okay. Nice. So I think without regard their naming, they actually share certain characteristics. Uh, from Azerbaijani perspective, I can speak for my own experiences and studies that they usually attend weddings or various celebrations. Uh, they play their saws, they sometimes dance, they, some, uh, they tell stories. Sometimes two or three ashiks come together and do verbal dueling. Uh, who can tell a story? Who can find the, the answer to the riddle? Um, it's a tradition that really uh, integrates various elements of oral or folk tradition, such as storytelling, songs, 
uh, riddle telling, dancing, sometimes even elements of theater. Um, my understanding is that both of these nations actually historically shared not only these traditions, but also stories that these ushers told. For example, I remember growing up reading a story, Asliba Charam, which is a famous story. I'm not sure if the story is known Armenia or not, but in Azerbaijani side, it's a pretty well-known story that ushers tell in their, uh, you name it, in their gatherings, which is a story that actually speaks a love affair between Armenian girl and Azerbaijani young man and how the father of this Armenian girl later didn't want this couple to marry and cause some problem and other things, uh, which to me shows that these traditions not only share some commonalities, but they also recognize the internal tensions. Because if you're familiar with the story, uh, the story goes that the parent, one of the parents, doesn't want the couple marry, and this causes the whole big tragedy. In other words, the story acknowledges that there is internal tension, there is this problem uh, between these uh, ethnic groups. Now, the story doesn't tell why that is so, but the story acknowledges that. So in my view, Azerbaijani oral tradition and Armenian oral tradition, if we speak about Ashriks or Ashurs, they are pretty well connected. Um, I think you mentioned Sayat Nova, which uh, I know who also wrote in Azerbaijani and Armenian. If I'm not mistaken, he also wrote in Georgian language. In other words, uh, he was a multilingual individual. And to me, that also indicates that these uh, various Ashurs, they had a shared audience. Whether it is Armenian audience or Azerbaijani audience, they often cross-pollinated each other's stories, each other's oral traditions. And they had a shared audience, which obviously, by the fact that they, they wrote in several languages, implies that they had this um, shared audience. Um, in Azerbaijani culture, Ashur tradition is still continuous. Although I would say it's uh, changed a little bit due to modern influences, uh, I wouldn't say it is as strong as it was in 19th century or earlier centuries, but it still continues. And they still continue to tell stories. So... Um, I would say this is a pretty old tradition. I don't know exactly its roots. Uh, it seems it goes all the way back to uh, Persian uh, cultural influences, or it may go even older than that. I don't know. But it is a tradition that belongs to the region rather than specific ethnic group in the region. That would be my approach. And I would say it's a tradition that functions to help people to share their memories and pass them on to from generation to generation. So that would be my, my short, I guess, sharing of information about that tradition. Great. Thank you. We have actually uh, people in our audience saying that, yes, we still have them in Armenia, this tradition and this narrative. So very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And yes, those narratives you just mentioned about sort of uh, not being able to, you know, marry your loved one or et cetera, because they belong to a different, you know, group, religious, etc. That yes, those are very common themes in Armenian literature, but not only, of course. Yes. Other cultures also share them. Yes, which which to my understanding actually shows also desire for connection between these two to two ethnic groups because it's not just that there was a parent, there was a you name it father trying to separate, but mm -hmm. the story also acknowledges reality between these people that there was also uh, interconnection, there was love. These young people tried to connect with one another. And that's despite the cultural stereotypes, because I remember growing up and hearing from other people stories about that, you know, 
if you future marry, you make sure that you don't marry somebody from Armenia. Even though we had the story telling that, you know, there was this Azerbaijani young man and Armenian young girl loving each other and passed on from to generation to generation. So even though there was a common stereotype among people, despite that, I think Ashur tradition at least memorialized the events that happened in the past in one way or the other and passed on to generations that there were transgressions such as based on love where people loved each other and tried to survive these ethnic divisions among one another. To me, it is, uh, it's a great opportunity. It's a great, uh, you name it, folk resource to help people even understand each other better. Thank you. Actually, in, uh, you know, one of the Armenian epics, the Daredevils of Sassoon, you know, you have this, you know, unions between Armenian and, for example, this Turkic woman, etc. So, yes, and it could be also some sort of a fantasization of something that's yeah. not achievable. Yes. Yeah, and uh, she is our sort of the gateway to that fantasy. Yes, yes. But the very fact that those stories existed tell us something about desires, tell us about people's interactions with one another. Even if it is a fantasy, my argument would be that that fantasy comes from need of recognizing and mm -hmm. being united with the other side in one way or the other. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. Thank you. Now let us move on to uh, something more relevant, I guess, to the recent conflict. The Gatshkin uh, storytellers, am I pronouncing that correctly? So the Gatshkin lore, they are... Uh, that that's a word you know used it, it means runaways but it uh, it's used for idps and refugees in azerbaijan uh yes yeah. so for kaskun uh, literally means somebody who runs away for idps internal displaced people we use the same word but officially and in technical documents we use the word uh which literally means people who were forced to move away or leave mm -hmm. away but in daily parlance, in daily language, people use the word Gatskrim for both groups. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So you have written, uh, I, I read one of your articles which you co-wrote about the Gatskrim storytellers. Very, very fascinating. And uh, to do with sort of narrating these memories of loss and suffering uh, in the first Nagorno-Karabakh war by means of traditional modes of storytelling, different uh, you know, genres put together apparently. And uh, what do these stories reflect and what impact do they have on the Azerbaijani public's uh, imagination of the first Nagorno-Karabakh war and the losses? And I would especially like you to discuss the importance of the Dishachkin storytellers uh, narrating and imagining, uh, especially in dreams, these lost worlds and lost places, lost spaces where people were forced to flee or an atrocity took place? Yes, yes, uh, that's a good question. So I will, I will try to address the question, the parts of it that I remember. So if I forget something, please remind me, Arnold, thank you mm -hmm. very much. But so my, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is that most of these stories that we collected, my, uh, uh, my friend who did the research with me in Azerbaijan, and uh, I, when we visited these refugees and talked to them, the one of the most recurrent themes that these stories reflected was the loss, trauma and desire to return. And on top of that, in these stories, I observed the tension because it's almost obviously they knew that they cannot return because they don't have that option. And those uh, tensions uh, made these stories almost feel insecure. They had some tension within them. Um, 
For example, people would tell us stories about how they would go and fight and leave there, but they also had children and they didn't want to leave their children alone because they have no responsibilities toward these children. So in terms of at the level of individuals, the major, major topic, the theme that emerged from these stories was uh, mostly the loss, whether it is dispossession, the loss of property, whether it is the loss of the life, whether it is uprootedness, which means basically loss of the context, loss of culture, loss of their uh, traditional ways of being, it almost always returned and dwelled, the, ho the whole story movement dwelled in this idea of loss. What we lost, how beautiful it was, how nice it was, how many vineyards we had there. Some stories told about um, the vineyards of the storytellers, how they had good days, how they were happy, and how the trauma, how the war changed everything. Uh, one of the things that I noticed, by the way, is that I don't know whether it's a way of rationalization or it's actually a um, historically verifiable claim. One of the claims that these stories made is basically differentiate between Armenians who lived in Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenians who came from Armenia. They almost always, uh, whether knowingly un or unknowingly, faulted Armenians who came from Armenia in their interpretation and helped Armenians who lived in Nagorno-Karabakh. So it was almost like saying that we were friends with Armenians who were living in Nagorno-Karabakh, but later things went really high wire because others from outside of Armenia got involved for political reasons. They, uh, they emphasized that, um, uh, uh, in fact, I was checking one of the stories today as a preparation for this interview. One of those stories was emphasizing that starting from mid-80s, mid almost late-80s, there were gatherings in Nagorno-Karabakh where... Uh, Armenians from Armenia came and started to discuss with people how Nagorno-Karabakh needs to be united with Armenia. Now, I don't know whether this story is true or not. What I do know, however, is that the consistent topic that people try to separate between these two groups, outsiders and insiders, we were good with insiders, insider Armenians, and outsider Armenians came and changed the um, situation. So I would say the topic of loss, the topic of rationalization, the theme of returning back over and over really um, stands out in these, um, in these uh, 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 stories. The other thing that I noticed is that um, you also can find these themes in their poetry, especially the new poetry that came out from their suffering. Um, they usually use oral traditions genre, uh, uh, such as Jeraile, uh, Tajnis, these are traditional genres of Azerbaijani oral tradition, to tell their suffering, to express their suffering and um, losses. My understanding is that these stories used by people in order to heal, or at least to rationalize and understand their own situation, number one. Number two, in public imagination, these stories used as a fuel for nation building. Look at what they did to us. We lost our lands, we lost our people. Now they are here, you know, they suffered. Here's a song, here's a poetry, here's a story, and now we need to somehow get our land back. It's almost like um, a periodical remembrance of death, suffering, and then victimization in order to fuel nation building as a kind of a, uh, I don't want to call it ideological, I want to be respectful to people's experiences and not to politicize it unnecessarily, but it was almost like fuel, some kind of a, a wound that occasionally was opened 
in order to build a new nation and define us versus them, the whole paradigm, because that was part of the new Azerbaijani nation building, as you may remember, the whole nation emerged, Armenian Azerbaijan through these wars. So those are the things that um, I can say right now, based on the question, as far as I remember, if I missed the element of question, uh, please mm -hmm. remind me. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. Just uh, maybe a little more about, you know, dreaming about this lost world. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. So when we interviewed uh, uh, refugees, several of them actually told us their stories as they experienced it in dreams. So it wasn't like we were going and interviewing and recording their stories. And they were telling us like ancient stories such as, uh, you name it, story of Asli and Charam or their daily lives as it was really back in Nagorno-Karabakh. Quite often, we discovered that some of them actually reverted to tell us their dreams. And when I say dreams, I don't mean like the dream as your desire for future, but dream where what you see when you sleep, what you experience in your sleep, that kind of dreams. Uh, almost all those dreams showed one way or the other people's desire to return. So, for example, one refugee woman, I remember, told us that Occasionally, she dreams herself going up to the hill and looking down to her village and seeing her home and seeing her front yard and backyard really unkept. She wants in her dream to go and take care of the place, but her legs does not move. She tries, but it doesn't move. It's almost like there is a, this, this um, what you call it, the subconscious element of insecurity that reveals in the dream. So from my perspective, uh, my interpretation would be that these dreams were really a way of um, somehow handling psychological trauma. Because in and of itself, stories, just telling stories wouldn't be enough to handle the trauma. So uh, if you're familiar with psychology, uh, perhaps you know that there is a really research going on how psychology, uh, how dreams express human wounds and how they function in this process. So to me, that was a confirmation of this psychological insight that their daily lives, whatever happened in the past and their loss was almost too, too difficult to bear in their daily lives. So some of it had to channel through their dreams in order to process, in order to help them understand their own reality. Um, some of the dreams uh, were pretty symbolic. In uh, one of the women that I interviewed talked about um, how in her dreams, they have guests in their home, and these guests are actual Armenians, the neighbors that they knew and lived together. Now, the time came, these Armenians left, and they're trying to wash the dishes, but these dishes never end. These like are dirty dishes, they're trying to wash these dishes, and there are more and more and dishes appearing for them to wash, which, which I interpreted at the time to mean unfinished business, like unfinished conflict that is going to continue and continue for these people because of their situation. I mean, they were living in this a uh, half-finished building called Idman Sarayi um, uh, that was really almost falling apart. And you could see this is not a place you can stay long-term. So it was almost their dreams combined what happened to them as a loss and what was happening to them in Azerbaijan, living in dire situations and trying to escape and manifested itself through their psyche. It um, was a very interesting process. It actually convinced me that I need to take dreams a little bit seriously. It's not just, you know, something that is empty, something that is really uh, uh, something that doesn't matter, but it's pretty serious thing that helps people to express their own wounds, especially those elements that they cannot process it perhaps in their daily lives through their stories or speeches exactly because of those uh, issues. 
Uh, interesting thing. Uh, I don't want to take too much time, but I want to mention this because in, in Azerbaijani tradition, there's also element that says a lot of Ashiks, some of the Ashiks, well, not a lot of, but some of them actually received the gift from God to be Ashik in their dreams. So while they were sleeping, they, uh, it's called uh, Buta Vermeh. They were given Buta by God or by divine being, whoever you call. They have received this insight or inspiration to become Ashik in their dream. And once they wake up, they start to becoming Ashik telling stories, which to me shows there is connection between the tradition and also uh, the dreams, the oral tradition and dreams, which almost converge in these refugees' experiences, telling stories, dreaming these stories, and then expressing them through the tools of oral tradition, through the modes of oral tradition. Very, very fascinating, actually, how this, you know, traditional modes of storytelling and the suffering, real suffering, and then the, you know, the the trauma that sort of has yeah. to come out through the unconscious subconscious perhaps in dreams it's so yeah. difficult to digest you know yeah. um, in real life i guess uh yes very fascinating i love uh, this sort of literature and studies on them yes they're uh, very interesting. Uh, one of the refugees i remember she told me that uh, so, so when they left the, uh, their village just a short story when they left their storage in, uh, they were so emotional or so shocked or so scared that somehow family forgot one of the little children behind. So they, they literally forgot about the child and halfway through they remembered. Mother went back, succeeded to get the child, but according to the family story, the later the child in Baku, she was so scared that she became sick. So yes, it is, it is trauma that really they had to process through their stories in order to survive. Uh, they had to somehow process it, whether it is through dreams or through oral tradition in order to survive. Otherwise, it manifested in literally bodily sicknesses, in various mental sicknesses that we mentioned before. That's very fascinating again. Thank you. And, and please don't feel rushed. We have plenty of time. Thanks. If you want to add anything more. Uh, so, yeah, the Khachrin, you know, storytellers are just fascinating. I want to read more about them. Um, your the work you co-wrote was the first one I actually read about them and yeah hoping to if anyone has any suggestions please leave it in the in the chat or send me later please and we will share the article I'm talking about with our audience on social media now let us go to our last you know scheduled uh, you know prepared question so, Reverend Jafarov, you are a Christian minister. Yes. Uh, as we know, most Azerbaijanis are Muslim, and Armenians largely Christian, at least nominally speaking. And not that religion has anything to do with the conflict between them. You know, it's about territory, it's ethnic conflict over territory. But do your religious beliefs or your um, occupation as a minister in the Reformed Church in America shape in any way your views on the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict and relations? And to add to that, have you ever considered uh, organizing any program to facilitate dialogue between Azerbaijanis and Armenians in the past, or do you plan to do anything uh, of this sort in the future? Thank you, very good question. So um, you actually raised uh, several very interesting issues, your questions that I believe um, I will try to address some of them, but I do agree with you on the matter that 
the ethnic conflict between Azerbaijanis and Armenians are mostly and predominantly exactly that, ethnic conflict. Uh, in fact, I was, uh, I was surprised during the second uh, Nagorno-Karabakh war uh, that there was some, some groups trying to bring in religious dimension to this conflict. Which, uh, uh, which, which, I, uh, which I believe did not work. And I believe that's actually a better outcome for both of these two nations because historically it has always been seen as an ethnic conflict rather than religious conflict. Now, religion may have some contribution to this issue, but in my estimation, as I talk to some of my Armenian acquaintances here from my own readings, from my own interactions, I would say the if there is any religious dimension to this conflict, that's perhaps minuscule. Uh, in my estimation, it's not strong enough to be considered as an additional factor that fuels this conflict. So I would say, yes, I agree that this is mostly a conflict about land that has some historical roots and is based mostly on ethnicity rather than on religious matters. That said, my own personal beliefs, yes, they do influence, they do... Um, impact my understanding of refugees and this conflict. Um, one of the things that I learned is that without regard to people's faiths, without regard to people's backgrounds and nationals, uh, nationalities, all refugees need some kind of a compassion. Doesn't matter if this individual is an Armenian, doesn't matter if this individual is Azerbaijani or Syrian or Afghani or you name it, somebody running away from Uganda, it doesn't matter, a refugee, in order to survive at least, needs some kind of a compassion. And in my view, in my understanding, I came to understand that compassion by reading my faith stories, reading the scripture, which in this case obviously is Bible, uh, reading other stories of early martyrs within uh, Christendom, I realized that, well, refugees existed at all times, whether we want it or not. Now, it obviously does not justify you know, letting the situations where refugees exist to continue. We have to try to resolve those situations. But the reality is that uh, w whether we want it or not, there will be victimization among different ethnic groups and peoples. And whenever there are refugees, they need compassion. Uh, I credit my faith for that. I believe my faith taught me, especially in these matters, to be uh, more compassionate than usual I would be uh, when it comes to matters of interacting with refugees, um, working with them or trying to understand them. The other thing that I believe my faith, I would say in this case, uh, my understanding of both faiths and moving from one faith to the other, so not just Christian faith, but also Islam, helped me understand that the issue of refugee really transcends ethnic boundaries. Whether you are a um, refugee from Iraq or refugee from Syria or refugee from Azerbaijan or Armenia, does not matter. They're, the things refugees struggle transcend all these boundaries in a sense that there, there is some common root to their experience. It's loss, it's trauma, it is uprootedness, it is a complete reversal of their normal lives that now they have to build again. Um, and I think being on both sides of this divide, on the side of Islam and on the side of you know, Christian faith, I came to realize that there are common themes to the stories that these religions tell about refugees. For example, if you study early history of Islam, uh, you may perhaps uh, 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 um, uh, encounter there the story of early uh, followers of Prophet Muhammad who ran away from, uh, uh, from idolaters, according to Islamic understanding, and went to Ethiopia 
in order to live there and survive. Those were early refugees within Islam. Uh, uh, within Christian story, we know that when Jesus was born, his light was, uh, was threatened. So his family had to leave and go to live in Egypt. So we have in these foundational stories, these elements where we see the foundational figures becoming either refugees or internal displaced people. Obviously, that's a little bit like uh, asynchronous understanding because at the time there was no concept of internal displaced people. But, you know, psychological trauma does not depend on modern concepts. These foundational figures still experience the loss and uprootedness. And when they left their nations, they basically experienced what today refugees experience. So I think being on both sides of the fence made me realize that in both of these faiths, they recognize that refugees need compassion. But for me personally, I came to understand better when I came to understand Christ's story, when I came to see what Christ teaches, why Christ calls us to serve the poor and the, you name it, the marginalized uh, uh, populations. However, I would acknowledge that actually in both of these faiths, there is an element that recognizes and acknowledges uh, the need to help, the need to show more compassion to uh, refugees or marginalized people or broken people, however um, you call it. My early experiences actually helped me later to specialize as a minister and work with refugees. Uh, when, I, uh, uh, when my parents, well, my mom at the time, went and brought that refugee family into our home, when later when I was in university studying at, at Baku and I met a lot of refugees and internal displaced people, it, um, uh, it almost really, uh, I don't know what to call it, maybe forced me or somehow shaped my understanding of myself and other people's lives. Because I saw suffering around me I saw people who suffered some with dignity, some unfortunately in misery. And um, at some point I realized that there needs to be something to be done about it. That's how I actually became involved in uh, collecting refugee stories with, uh, uh, with another scholar. And later when I came to the United States and started to work as a minister, that's how I became involved working with um, refugees. So I would say yes, my growing up in a war-influenced, war-impacted nation, and my faith later where there is emphasis on helping broken people, the marginalized people, definitely shaped my work and understanding of refugees. How to approach them, how to work with them, why do this, why that matters. So in that sense, yes, I would say there is a huge impact in my life. My former experiences and my faith and my um, former faith background, if I can say so, in order to, uh, um, in, in my understanding of refugees and others. That will be short answer if I can say so. Thank you. Thank you for, for that. Uh, also, have you ever considered organizing, uh, you know, a program to facilitate dialogue between Azerbaijans and, and Armenians before, or do you plan to do so in the future? Um, I'm not sure what the future will bring. At this point, I'm not necessarily... Uh, thinking about that, if, if, if there was another group, I would love to join and work with them in one way or the other. But in the past, I actually tried that. I think I can't give you exact year. I have to go to my own archives, to my documents to kind of find out the exact year. But I would say maybe eight years ago, perhaps, I had a chance to interact with a few Armenian ministers living in the United States. And at the time, I suggested that we start some kind of a peace-building process, grassroots level. 
not something that comes from diplomatic channels, not something that is really issued by governments, but somehow in a small ways uh, between us, we start some kind of a process, peace building process. And my inspiration at the time was uh, the truth and peace building process in South Africa. Um, if you if you know South African story, you perhaps heard that in South Africa, there was a racial division and very deep racial conflict. However, once that conflict somewhat settled, there were um, ministers or there were Catholic priests emerged from that conflict that tried to resolve it, by the way, through the means of storytelling. Uh, you may perhaps hear Desmond Tutu who worked on that. Uh, Nelson Mandela was not necessarily a priest or a religious uh, individual, but nevertheless, he also really appealed to the faith in order to resolve the conflict in um, uh, South Africa. Uh, we see the same thing in the United States. Uh, you're familiar perhaps with uh, Martin Luther King's activities. Martin Luther King himself was a minister, Baptist minister, and in his civil rights movements, he heavily relied on the stories of faith, Christian faith, biblical stories, Old Testament stories. He rallied these stories up in order to build the process of reconciliation between various groups within the United States in one way or the other. Now, that inspired me and I wanted to start that kind of a process. Um, unfortunately, uh, I can't give you exact reasons. Uh, there are too many of them. Some of them I'm not even aware of. Unfortunately, it did not work. So I did not pursue that work uh, in the past. But yes, I, I did try to do something similar, although uh, really nothing significant came out of it. As to the future, as I said, um, at this point, I don't know. It will depend on future. I also realized that it's not the work of a one individual. Uh, it's not work of even a small group. There have to be a, a group of a critical size to be involved in order to handle this issue because this is a issue between two nations, two ethnic groups with deep historical roots. It's not like a conflict that happened five years ago. It has really deep historical roots that needs to be addressed. And in that sense, I think, yes, with another group I can work, but starting something on my own alone, um, it's a little bit difficult for me to imagine right now for future to do something like that. So I hope that addresses your question. It does. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we have about uh, 15 minutes or just a little less to answer questions. So uh, apparently, I don't remember if I told our audience, if you have any questions, uh, please submit it. Uh, uh, which they should show up in the question icon I press, even though, okay, we have one here. It's from our own very own Diego, uh, co-founder, co-director of Bright Garden Voices. Uh, has he had interactions with Armenians in the U.S.? So have you had uh, interactions with Armenians in the U.S.? What, what is your perception of yes, Armenians? Yes, so uh, I will tell you an interesting story. Um, so several years ago, when I was on a university campus, I saw a young man and he looked like, to me like uh, very much like an Azerbaijani or at least somebody who is from one of the Spanish speaking countries, maybe from South America. But he really, really, really looked like an Azerbaijani to me. That's how I perceived. So I thought, well, I'm going to go and talk to him. Maybe he's from Azerbaijan or Caucasus. So I had a chance to talk to him. And when I talked to him, I discovered that he's actually from Armenia. <laughs> very interesting thing. So. Uh, that was my first experience with Armenian student coming from Armenia in the United States. Uh, we formed actually quite a deep friendship. Uh, he was studying engineering. 
we became friends and we started we 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 started to go out together share some meals together and started to discuss occasionally armenian and azerbaijani conflict nagorno karabakh conflict um uh, he was all a generation that grew up after that disconnect between azerbaijanis and armenians and as we talked both of us discovered that there are actually pretty significant influences between these two ethnic groups uh, i remember one day we were talking about uh, words in azerbaijani and in armenian and he said that well i didn't know that we had you know a few common words in azerbaijani and armenian i said well apparently there had been historical influence um that was my first experience and after that i have met with some other armenians some of them came from russia some of them came from uh, came from lebanon other countries of the middle east and lived in the united states uh, i also met with armenians who lived in baku and left baku in 1990s in fact in grand rapids which is a city here in michigan there's a, a an armenian shop called urartu which is a shop uh, established by armenians who lived in baku so i occasionally go there to buy some uh, food so uh, i do have connections with these people and my perception was that um behind all of these politics behind all of these ethnic conflicts behind all of these uh national nation building rhetoric really exists deep down simple ordinary flesh and bone human lives that actually desire to live in peace rather than resolve the conflict of land um rather than uh start building more and more boundaries um so in that sense i think one of the greatest lessons i learned talking to these armenian uh acquaintances and friends and strangers and outsiders and insiders within the church was that well actually we have a lot of common if nothing else at least in terms of our humanity we have a lot of common in terms of our cultural influences upon one another we have a lot of common um we have a lot of common things that we share so i would say my interaction with armenians actually humanized them to me and i believe my interaction with them humanized me to them i hope so uh before coming to the united states i had been in armenia only once uh that was before all of these wars started it was during the soviet union and i remember my my father was going to some other city and we went to uh, yerevan airport Yerevan at the time had a very beautiful very renowned airport that's what i remember so but that was very limited experience that was childhood and i have very very uh, 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 um very unclear memories of that event so my significant experiences with armenians really uh happened to be in the united states in this country and in that sense i think as i said the greatest lesson i learned is that despite all of these divisions despite all of these conflicts language differences deep down these are people who share a lot of commonalities if nothing else i'm putting away all the culture all the similarities all the influences is that we share as a flesh and bone human beings to we we share the desire to live in peace we share desire to be good neighbors to one another and that's to me majority's opinion uh in armenia and in azerbaijan uh how political issues influence their opinions that's a different matter but i would say that default opinion despite all the stereotyping despite all the ambiguity would be at the end of the day we are neighbors and we want to live with one another in peace that would be my experience that was that was my interaction and learning uh with armenians so thank you uh let me see if there's any other questions please uh 
either submit it as a question or write it as a comment. How do I scroll through? And if you are joining us halfway or later, so this is one of our uh, garden chat episodes, our second one. Uh, I am Arnold Alaverdian, one of the co-directors of Bright Garden Voices. And we are joined by Action Jafarov. Um, and this will be recorded, this meeting uh, will be you know, saved uh, in our Instagram live section of the Bright Garden Voices uh, Instagram account. Uh, any, anything else? I don't see any other question or I am not tech savvy enough to see them maybe perhaps. Uh, so action, uh, if you would like, maybe we could end on any, uh, you know, final words you have for our audience. Um, well, I would, I would encourage our audience to be open to the other side and to learn from each other. Now, I don't want to neglect the grievances of people, whether Azerbaijani and Armenian, I don't want to neglect the loss. I don't want to downplay that. It is true that both sides suffered. It's true that both sides have losses, whether uh, losses of individuals, whether losses of nations. But my personal belief is that we are not going to resolve this conflict only and only by the means of wars. The war only like a loop, like some kind of a circle will create more and more hatred, more and more, um, you name it, more and more disengagement, more and more alienation from the neighboring nation, whether for Azerbaijanis or Armenians, whether we want it or not, for the sake of region, including Georgia, not just Azerbaijan and Armenia, including Iran and Turkey, despite their sizes and influences in the region, for the sake of existing together in one way or the other, we have to start open channels, whether to build peace, whether to heal wounds through speaking and listening each other's traumas, because those, these, those stories need to be acknowledged. Those stories um, need to be shared so that people basically humanize one another and refuse to hate. Um, it might be heavy. It might be hard to hear other side's story to realize that, well, wait a minute, we are not the only side who lost. We're not the only side who have wounds. The other side has also wounds. But those stories need to be heard. Those stories uh, need to be told in one way or the other. And in that sense, I would encourage our audiences, including you and me, to be open to these opportunities, whether it is through this channel, through your... Uh, attempts or in their personal lives that ar uh, uh, arise uh, spontaneously to really be open rather than build walls and say, well, that individual is Armenian or Azerbaijani, therefore that already by default um, refuses or somehow determines my refusing of that individual. I would encourage our friends, our audience to overcome their own um, uh, whatever you call uh, their own stereotypes, prejudices, their own doubts, suspicions, and take the first step. The first Armenian, the first Azerbaijani may refuse you, but at some point you will find somebody to talk, to understand and to share something that will help you to become better individual, and that will help them to become better individual. And 
you will have one less person in Armenia and Azerbaijan who hates the other side. That would be my take for myself. And I would encourage uh, uh, our audience to have that kind of attitude because this conflict is not going to be resolved through uh, violence. We have seen that violence throughout ages. It has been in the past. It is written in historical documents. It has become a tool in the hands of larger nations, such as Armenia, Iran, and Turkey, to influence these local smaller nations for their own political ends. Um, so instead of letting this conflict continue this way, I would actually encourage our audience in one way or the other, start working with the other side without neglecting losses and trauma so that something better, something peaceful can emerge out of this conflict. That would be my take and that, that I would um, heartily recommend to the audience. Yes, and as you said, for instance, in your own experience, real life contact with Armenians does you know, humanize or rehumanize sort of your imagination of these people who are supposed to be enemies. Yes. And, and yes, and uh, the, even though this is a virtual event, not as good as real life, still you see face to face, you know, That's people it. of the other group, you know, governments, they can, they have the ability to do things we can't, you know, in politics, in the international stage, in solving conflict, major NGOs have a lot of resources and it is important they do their job. Uh, with the resources they have maybe to bring people together, but also ordinary people in the age of, in the age of, you know, social media, you have a lot of, you have a big voice. You can create huge platforms, you know, I mean, yeah. Agreed. and you can do your part. It's better to have multiple numerous different platforms than one big one trying to run things. It's just more, you know, it's, uh, it feels more friendly. Uh, you, you are more likely to build closer connections and yeah. And we hope more people, you know, uh, get in touch, get in contact with the other side. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, working with refugees and, you know, immigration in this age, and we're probably going to experience yes. more, more of this with climate change, with uh, not just wars, with so many other environmental and other things on the horizon in the world. Uh, we have to really build a culture of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, approaching dealing with refugees in a proper way because we all could be refugees. It's not... Yeah, that's very true. I agree. Yes. Some of us have been, some of us could be. And... Um, Again, um, I was joined by Action Jafarov. Uh, Action, uh, Reverend Jafarov, thank you so much uh, for this chat. Thank you, thank you very uh, much. I, I very much enjoyed it. I hope our audience did. And uh, we hope to perhaps, you know, see you on a later episode, um, perhaps to meet in real person. Sure. And everyone, this was uh, our second garden chat for Bright Garden Voices. I'm Arnold Alaverdian, one of the co-directors of Bright Garden Voices, and this meeting will be recorded and made available here on Instagram for you to view later. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful day or night, and cheers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you.